0: Hi everyone, happy Friday! How has your week been? Well regardless of how it has been, I hope you all have a sweet day ahead whenever you may be listening to this episode. And I am placing emphasis on the word sweet because as you can tell from our episode title, we will be tackling some sugary conversations in today's episode. Speaking of sugary and sweet, who here has a sweet tooth? I am raising my hand right now, both hands, and I hope you are too. Honestly, I don't just Anybody who does not have a sweet tooth. I'm joking. But honestly though, I live for sweets and desserts and pastries. Cakes? Yes. Juices? Yes. Ice cream? Yes. Boba? Hell yes. Must need dessert after every meal? That's me. In fact, I don't know if you know, but if I am planning to go out for dinner with friends and I am 100% sure that there would be no plans for dessert or no dessert places nearby the restaurant at all... I would decide to just not go out. <laughs> Is it an addiction? Probably, but I'm owning up to it. Kidding aside, I agree. I need to watch my sugar and general carb intake, given my family history of diabetes on both sides. I mean, has anybody here watched the movie Mary Poppins? Do you remember the song, Just a Spoonful of Sugar? This a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. The medicine go <laughs> Truly though, a spoonful or more of sugar every day will probably require us to take more medication. The unwanted D word, diabetes, a chronic disease that's always paired with the words sugar and sweet. According to the American Diabetes Association, approximately 30 million people in the United States alone in 2021 were diagnosed with diabetes, both types one and type two combined, with 352,000 of these being under the age of 20. It truly is a rampant epidemic, or even a pandemic. Diabetes is a byproduct of the body's erroneous handling of the insulin hormone. Hormones are signaling molecules and chemicals released by different parts and organs of our body to regulate our physiology and behavior. Our body strives for balance and harmony of these hormones, the crux of the field of endocrinology, because the excess or deficiency of any of these can lead to diseases and conditions, one being obesity, a topic we touch upon greatly in this episode. During the last season of the podcast, we sat down with board certified endocrinologist, Dr. Rocio Salaswealin to talk about all things, obesity medicine in adults. In this episode, I wanted to take it a step further, or should I say a step back in time when it comes to children. There's a common misconception that children are just small adults, but this is farther from the truth. The approach to children's bodies and health is so complex and different from adults, and we need a rightful expert to guide us through it. This is why I'm so honored to have our expert guest for today, Dr. Sheila perez Colon, a New York-trained and Puerto Rico-based board-certified pediatric endocrinologist, assistant professor of medicine, and diabetes clinic director. Having moved back to Puerto Rico to serve her homeland, she currently stands as the owner of Elite Endocrine MD, a direct specialty care practice the first one in Puerto Rico at that, that focuses on pediatric diabetes, obesity management, thyroid disorders, and preorderal disorders. Endocrinology is such a complex topic, and Dr. Sheila is here to break it down for us with no spoonful of sugar coating. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Have a great day.
1: Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good, you? Doing? And you?
0: I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. We're miles apart. I love it.
1: Yes, we're miles apart.
0: <laughs> miles apart, but we're in the one space today. We have so much to talk about and I was so excited to receive your message. Time's just flying well, by, right? How's the doing? weather, there? Awesome.
1: It's like so warm. Have you been here before? I've never Definitely. been, I, I would, would love to. You should to. just come and visit. It's very warm. I'm sunny beautiful beaches so yes
0: yeah. yes I mean you were here in New York before too so I guess you know the expectation of how the weather is cold and then it's hot and then it's really- raining all the time Dr. Sheila if you could first please introduce yourself to everybody thank you so much Definitely. again for so,
1: hi everyone my name is Dr. Taylor perez Colon. I am a board certified pediatric endocrinologist I did my residency and my fellowship in New York City I stayed there working for a few years. Yes, New York so much, I miss it. (laughs) It was such a wonderful experience. Then I went to LA for a year. I did work there as an endocrinology as well. And because I'm originally from Puerto Rico, I want to really be close to the island and to Mm -hmm. the family. So I moved to Miami in 2019 and I worked there until 2022. So for three years, I did work there. And maybe seven months ago, I arrived here in Puerto Rico I brought a new model here for medical care, which is specialty care. And I opened my private practice here and I am so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I can't imagine the amount of wonder and change of the care that you bring to Puerto Rico now, which we will talk about. Well, I wanted to dive first into the journey that it took to get to where you are now, which you all know it's a very long journey, right? Usually it's four years of college and then four years of medical school and then However amount, years of residency and fellowship, if one chooses to do so, right? So can you take us through that journey of from college to all the way through fellowship? So let's see, I did
1: my high school here in Puerto Rico. I did my biology degree in Puerto Rico as well, in the University of Puerto Rico, which is an excellent university here in the island. After that, I went to medical school. I went to the Universidad Autónoma de Guadalajara. And there, it's a five years, actually, medical school. It's not four. So for the three years, I stayed there in Guadalajara, which was an excellent experience, and I learned so much. But for the last two years, you have the opportunity to go to New York and do the rotations, clinical rotation, and be there for two years. So I did that. I actually went to Maimonides Medical Center for my fourth year of medical school. And for the fifth one, which is called the Fifth Pathway, I did it in New York Medical College. That's in Valhalla, New York. After that, then I Mm -hmm. stayed for residency in Maimonides Medical Center for those three years, as you mentioned. And and I stayed for so specialty for pediatric endocrinologist at that time, which was, oh my God, I graduated <laughs> in 13 from, Fel- <laughs> so at that time, Chris, it was a combined program. It was between like SUNY Downstate Medical Center and Maimonides. So I do remember mm-hmm. going around between hospital, being on call. We actually, other hospital as well, like Lutheran. Yeah. And I was driving with so many consuls, but it was so great. And, and I learned so much. So I'm very grateful for mm-hmm. that.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, Maimonides is such a good pediatric hospital. I think I did my rotations yes. in the PICU and NICU at Maimonides. So you can tell that the team really, really loves their patients and the kids. But, you know, like you said, it's such a long time, right? I mean, where did this inspiration come from to become a physician? Is it family, friends, think, or personal Well, experience? I don't have anyone
1: in my family being a doctor. I'm the first doctor in the family. Mm-hmm. In terms of experience, sure. I need to definitely give it to my pediatrician. My pediatrician, patient many years ago here in Puerto Rico I do recall as a child going with my mom to the office and how he was talking to my mom how he was examining me so I did love how he interacted with the family and with the child itself at that time Chris I remember was like paper chart we didn't have like electronic medical I remember the doctor going back (laughs) and forth and looking to the lab I don't know that really really I was so happy you know what he was doing so I wanted to do that moreover I do this kind of person that I want everyone to be kind of happy. Like when persons are in disagreement and I'm always trying to comfort everyone. So I think maybe those two things really, it's what inspires me to go to medical school.
0: What is it about pediatricians that they're always so nice and so lively? You know, everyone that I talk to, I think one of the key people in their childhood memories are their pediatricians. <laughs> I mean, I, I wanted the pediatrician oh. a lot as a kid because I had childhood asthma and I just remember how kind and just so loving pediatricians are. It's, it's beautiful. But, you know, amidst all of that dog, like you said, it's a long road, but that long road is not just like an easy road, right? There's a lot of sacrifices. I mean, I can't imagine being a medical student before, right? Like You have to say no to a lot of parties or gatherings because you have to study. A lot of the time involved, the stress and all of that. Given the length and the stress of the road, now that you are a fully practicing physician, is there any regrets in the road that you take?
1: Honestly, I don't have any regrets. And I'm very honest. I went to medical school because mm-hmm. I was really passionate about it. I was determined. And this decision was even from high school. I knew I was going to medical school, so I planned everything. So I have no regrets at all. However, off, yes, it was, <laughs> right? Did I miss a lot of important you know, moments in life? Yes, I did. Like family birthday, you know, like friend's wedding, like even our kid milestone. We were all starting. So it's a tough road, but for me, I always knew I wanted to be a a pediatric endocrinologist. I went because I already knew I wanted to do endocrinologist. So it's something that I do love. It's something that every morning I wake up so happy to go and see my patient. So I guess if you have the passion, even the tough road, Mm -hmm. and it is, Mm -hmm. you can make it and you will be happy.
0: That's beautiful. And that's so encouraging. And it's so interesting for you to say that you knew that you wanted to be a pediatrician. And the pediatric endocrinologist. I wanted to ask, how do you know that? Is it from your pediatrician as a child? Or was it so during really rotations from in my medical kind of school? Rotation?
1: Even from high school, right? We go into this and you start to yeah. hear about hormones yeah. and biology. So that already intrigued me. Like, I want to know more about that. And definitely in medical school, I felt in love with that complex endocrine system, as you know. So I felt in love with that. You know, like we should be on a stable state. Mm-hmm. So any increase mm-hmm. in the hormones or any deficiency of the hormone could lead to so many conditions or diseases that for me was like, I needed to, and it's like a puzzle, right? Like love <laughs> a puzzle. It's like, yeah. like something is done. What should I do to bring it up and to make the kid and the family, you know, wealth overall. So yeah, I always knew it. It's so fun, the endocrine system. I love it.
0: A few months ago for our second season, we had Dr. Rocio Salas-Walen on, who is an obesity expert, right, which is obviously an endocrinologist, but we didn't really touch upon endocrinology. And, you know, it's always so hard to find a guest on the podcast to do endocrinology because I feel like it's such a hidden secret garden in medicine, right? For those who are listening now or who may not know what endocrinology is, and I know you already give a hint of it. What is the field of endocrinology? What do you deal with? And what do you think pediatrics endocrinology make how is it okay. different from So
1: animals? endocrinologists, right? As a pediatric endocrinologist, I do treat several most of the hormonal condition, actually all of them. So I treat conditions such as like pre-diabetes, diabetes, type one or type two. Thyroid disease, either hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, puerthal condition. Nowadays, we see like girls and actually boys are getting into puberty early. So I do manage that diagnosis and, and manage that, I do treat patients with growth concern, for example, those patients who are too short, they may have growth hormone deficiency, they may not, we do the workup and then we'll see if we need to treat or even too tall. So like I mentioned before, our system is kind of in a balance, any excess or deficiency of a hormone could lead to conditions and definitely decrease obesity. This is something that I love to talk about. Because most of the time we think like obesity is just like maybe a physical characteristic, but it's not that. It's such much more. Obesity is a disease and it's a chronic disease. And we need to recognize, right, and acknowledge it. So we're able to prevent the complications. And for your other question, like what was the difference, right, between like treating maybe adult patients? So pediatric patients are definitely different starting from basics an adult can say what's wrong how do they feel pediatric patients they don't maybe if they're adolescent or young adult they they do but in small kids they can so it's like trying to figure out what is going on with them going by what the family member is saying because now it's not the patient is the mother the guardian the father whoever is taking care of the family i do love pediatric endocrinology is because children have social imagination and they see everything is like possible, right? There's nothing impossible for a child. But at the same time, when they are sick, they're so vulnerable. Like I wanted to be there to help on those moments. So there's a big difference between adult endocrine and pediatric endocrine. Although many of the conditions by definitions are the same. For example, Step one, there's insulin deficiency, it's the same for pediatrics or adults. Hypothyroidism, there's deficiency of the tidal hormone, it's the same. But the management is completely different, the follow-up is more close, so it's different.
0: Ever since I was a child, my inner arms and neck would always suffer from itchiness and irritation whenever I would sweat. It can become so debilitating, forcing myself not to scratch my skin and end up with wounds from prickly heat, especially at night. Thankfully, I have found relief through by Dr. Mom's Soothing Beta Cream and Soothing Bad Treatment, which uses barley-derived beta-glucan technology to help alleviate eczema, bug bites, and dry, itchy, irritated skin. Beta-glucan is a fiber shown in scientific studies to improve skin hydration and healing. And Buy Dr. Mom's products extract it with a technique that uses air technology, requiring no chemicals or solvents. Created by family physician Dr. Stephanie Liu with the help of an allergist and immunologist, you can now allow your skin to breathe and heal naturally. Using the code Christian10, that's christian T I A N one zero, you can get 10% off your first order on bydrmom.com. As a healthcare worker, my identity can become so boxed within the pressures and expectations of my profession that sometimes, I forget who I really am outside the hospital walls. This is why I find so much power in liberation and self-expression through fashion and accessories, and Lupin seeks to do the same. Encouraging self-confidence and creating a safe space to be yourself, Lupin seeks to share with the world simple and impactful jewelry pieces that can bring confidence effortlessly. Meaning what goes around comes around, the brand, comprised of third-generation jewelers, holds a mission to brighten the community by promoting positivity and a growth mindset. Lupin's clean designs are handcrafted in South Korea using 925 sterling silver, and can go with almost any outfit on anyone. In fact, I wear my pieces on and off shift. With the code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, you can get 15% off your first order on lupin.com. Let's bring more luster into the world, together with Lupin. I remember coming home every day from elementary school and smelling the newly steamed jasmine rice in the cooker that my grandmother made just in time for dinner. It reminded me of my first few years living on the farm back home in Asia, sniffing the rice while overlooking the fields. Founded in 2020, Bison Candle Co. hand-pours nostalgic and iconic scented soy wax candles inspired by the Asian scents flavors and traditions that founder Brandon Leung grew up with in his first-generation Chinese-American household. Brandon's mission with Boy Son is to create authentic Asian aromas while rediscovering his love of his Chinese culture and heritage. The candles and home fragrances celebrate aromatic Eastern flavors and aromas one would typically find in an Asian kitchen or pantry like Vietnamese coffee, steamed white rice, and white peach. Enjoy traditional scents alongside some modern spin-off blends and be taken back into the beauty of the motherland with the code BISENFRANZ, that's B-A-I-S-U-N-F-R-A-N-Z for 15% off your first order at BisonCandleCo.com. I think, especially here in America, I think one of the biggest misconceptions by the general public is that children are just small adults right? Which is completely wrong because I feel like though anatomically it might be the same, it's like the size is different, the physiology changes as someone grows up, even especially pre-puberty and then post-puberty. And I must admit that the endocrine system is always the one system during exams and studying that my brain is always like, there is so much to know. Because let's say like the heart, right? All you have to know is literally how the heart works and how it may, I don't know, affect other body systems. But when it comes to the endocrine, there's like how many different organs into play, right? Like you have the hypothalamus, you have the thyroid, parathyroid, the testes, the ovaries, the adrenals. It's like, Information overload. Like the the, the
1: system control the function of the whole body. The pancreas, like the pituitary, the pituitary actually, and this is how I explain to patients and to family. It's like the the one that is driving, right? Because sends signals Mm. for your development, as you mentioned, for your example, cortisol, make sure your blood Mm -hmm. is okay. Mm it's okay so it's okay. such important and yes endocrine has a lot to do in your overall all the functions of your body but i do love your deal because it's so exciting i remember the rotation and i did learn a lot so i do what you do
0: yeah it is fun but i must say the endocrine is on another level i must say because i think besides the physical right in the physiological the endocrine actually taps in because it is hormonal like into like the psychosocial, so the emotions, right? Like if something wrong is with the lungs, it's like, I think the manifestation is when someone breathes and potentially blood gases. But when there's something wrong with any of the endocrine organs, right? It's not just something wrong with the body, but people's emotions get involved, right? And because hormones can influence how someone feels, especially when it comes to the sexual reproductive organs, right? And I wanted to know like if you walked into your clinic today, what would you think would be the top three reasons why someone would see a pediatric endocrinologist or specifically I say in your practice?
1: Three of them. Number one will be type one diabetes, the increase in, mm-hmm. of the increase in type one diabetes. Mm-hmm. And actually here in Puerto Rico, in you know, a lot of diabetes type mm-hmm. one. New onset. So that is number one. Number two, yeah. I will say thyroid hypothalam. It's very yeah. common in clinic. We see it almost every day. I see it every day. And then the other one will be can I say two on the last one? Because they are like I will say we'll say
0: you break rules for here.
1: <laughs> evaluation for right. But I can leave alone yeah. like puberty. Puberty, precocious puberty, like I mentioned before, is a topic and it's a diagnosis that is now maybe more recognized and more diagnosed. We saw, Chris, and um, increase mm-hmm. in the diagnosis of precocious puberty during the pandemic. And there were studies even done mm-hmm. to see, is this just the sedentaryism that happened, that patient wait and they increasing weight mm-hmm. increase the hormones for us to go into early puberty or was it something else so I will say that those diagnoses are the most common but now and then you will see a genetic syndrome like a Turner syndrome you name mm-hmm. it adrenal mm-hmm. insufficiency it's so very. our clinic has every patient is different and it's amazing I'm in love with it
0: I'm actually very curious given that you studied here in New York and did your rotations here and work you know in New York and la and, and Florida what do you think it's the difference when it comes to health and I guess the giving that help to Puerto Rico. How, how are the patients different? How is the care different? Because I know there's also like cultural and social aspects I, I that come into
1: say it. I think every place that I have been is completely different. And that in a good way has mm-hmm. made me experience, right? Because mm-hmm. I have seen mm-hmm. different diagnoses that I may just have seen maybe in New York or in Miami but Puerto Rico is where I was born right this is like my home so I always have dreamed to come back to Puerto Rico because here there's a huge need of doctors the medical system is suffering now and has been for so many years so for me returning to the island was I see it as like I'm contributing to the change so I'm so happy and when I am in clinic with patients that speak my language from my birthplace, play I feel such a joy and i feel the place that I should be. Even though you give your care, and I love all my patients from everywhere because I do keep in contact with many of them. There's nothing like helping your place, your home place, the training. I got all the experience. I'm ready. Why not to bring it back to your island that is needing it and is suffering? So I'm here.
0: That's beautiful. I love that doc. You know, we were talking about a big problem, which is obesity, right? I feel like if, if you look into like, news in the United Kingdom or some news in in Asia, there's always a running joke that the United States is the nation of obesity, right? And I mean, it, it's not just a stereotype. It actually is true. I mean, the rates of obesity in the United States is high, maybe relative to other countries in the world, right? And when we think of the United States, most of the time people think of what? Extra large sodas and burgers and fries. I want to know, is that Issue of obesity also a prevalent problem in yes, Puerto
1: Rico. It in your yes, it is. It's almost the yeah. same in United States. So, like the diet, mm-hmm. right? The processed food. I don't like to say diet. Mm-hmm. I usually say like the meals or the food. Yes, those processed food, like mm-hmm. high sugary drinks, right? Like we're exposed mm-hmm. to those. Definitely, mm-hmm. that sedentarism. Like kids are not going out to mm-hmm. play anymore. I remember when I was growing here, like I was. Out and maybe playing outside with the ball or riding a bike. You don't see, I actually moved here a few months ago. I live in a neighborhood that there's some kids and I don't see them outside playing any, right? So it's it's on their iPad on their screen. So there's so many factors that influence on that. However, a lot of genetic factor obesity is a multifactorial condition, right? So there's. The environmental factors, genetic factors, but also, you know, like how our lifestyle, it's very important. But I do see increasing yeah. obesity here in Puerto Rico, in the pediatric population, as well as in the adult population, you see it. You see, yeah.
0: And so when it comes to obesity, I think the big question when it comes to obesity is what is obesity. And I, I think the general public, the first thought when it comes to obesity is when it comes to someone's size, right? How the waist measurement is or what is the number on the scale or what someone eats. I think those are the general public definitions of what obesity is. But I feel like there's a rise, especially with thanks to physicians like you and endocrinologists, who are trying to break this stigma and this misconstrued perception of the public that obesity is a fault of the patient or a fault of the person who is obese. I want to know, as a physician, as an expert in this field, what is your definition of obesity? And for all of your patients who come to you with a problem of obesity, how do you diagnose that? Is it based on the number of the scale? Is it based on what they eat? Is it based on the so measurement?
1: For me, the definition of obesity, its obesity is a chronic disease that can lead to other comorbidities or other diseases, right? So obesity predisposes you to prediabetes, to diabetes type 2, to inflammation of the liver or fatty liver, could affect leave your bones, So it affect everything and could lead to other disease. How do we diagnose obesity in pediatric? In pediatric, we go by what we use is the body mass index or the BMI. What is this? This is just the ratio, right? Between the weight of the patient and the height of the patient. That me a number which is the bmi and when the patient come to the clinic traditionally right we do the vital signs we do the weight and height and we plot them on the growth chart depending on the percentile with that bmi stand then we will say this patient is overweight is on a healthy weight or has obesity we should say anymore more like patient is obese mm-hmm. we should say patient has obesity so mm-hmm. inter- percentile. Any percentiles like it's from 85 percentile to 94. This is considered overweight. The pediatric patient is overweight and from 95 percentile and above, we consider this patient has obesity or has overweight if it is below from. 85 to 94 percentile. Mm-hmm. And Chris, recently, the CDC, and I put this on my social media, in Instagram, it's like the CDC even made some extension to the growth chart, to the BMI growth chart recently, mm-hmm. as recent as 2023, to increase those percentile, mm-hmm. to include the 99 percentile. Because nowadays, there's an epidemic of obesity in mm-hmm. children that we couldn't track how these patients mm-hmm. were progressing. So we needed to extend that. To that degree, mm-hmm. it, it does affect. So that's the definition of obesity. So we do it by that number, the BMI. Mm-hmm. But again, in my mm-hmm. education, every day I, I speak with my patients and with the family, it's not just mm-hmm. a number. And there's a, okay, right, that we can measure obesity mm-hmm. and the waste, all that. But that's the definition mm-hmm. that we use globally in pediatric.
0: I, I love the point that you make that we change the terms from the person is obese to the person has obesity. Right. And I love that it kind of like takes away the fault and the blame from the person who has it or experiencing it. Right. And I want to know, as we know, the obesity has a lot of comorbidities and we have seen data on the effects it may have on cardiovascular systems or pulmonary, right, and other parts of the body and other systems of the body. How much more dangerous is it for a child to have obesity as opposed to an adult? And I'm not trying to make a competition between adults and, and children who has obesity, but is it more alarming if a child has yes, obesity? My
1: answer will be yes. And I'll tell you why. Because if a child has obesity and they start having this chronic condition early, we may tend to see or they have increased risk of the complications to be seen early. For example, I do see it in clinic very often. I do diagnose patients who are 11, 12, 10 years old with type 2 diabetes, which this is a condition that usually we use. Remember, that was only for adult and when it's a -hmm. condition for adult, I do see tension early on. I do see like sleep apnea secondary to the obesity. So, yes, it will make damage. And as you mentioned in terms of vasculature, yes, there's a lot of endothelial changes that happen from early on. So, I will say it's more severe and it's very alarming. I'm really into like educating the population, the community as much as I can to not recognize it as a condition because chronic condition it is. That way, you know, in the society, maybe we will get some help for education and actually for treatment if we need it. Otherwise, if we don't get like that, then it will stay like that. And then our kids may not reach, you know, maybe an adult age.
0: Yeah, definitely. When it comes to that, and we'll talk about incretins a little bit more in a bit, but for just children who do have obesity and are already, you know, feeling the effects, the comorbidities of it, and we see more elevated blood pressures, or it's not unheard of that kids already have hypertension, right? Or earlier incidences of even heart attacks and strokes in teens and adolescents, right, or young adults. What is the key to solving this problem of obesity as a first line? Even before medications, what would be your recommendation for someone comes into your clinic and, like, doc, my son or my daughter or my child is having a problem with this what would be your first recommendations to them is it already medications is it weight loss by i don't know by eating so by i love that of? you asked
1: that because number one is to recognize right that the is suffering from this condition that mm-hmm. we need to recognize it not only the physician who is seeing the patient right in the patient but also the family members because again Going back to pediatric, most of the patients in pediatric depends on their family members. They are the model, right? So I usually start with, you know, like, we're going to work this together. Let's try to figure it out. We need to do like what is called a motivational history taking for us to mm-hmm. get some work and then we will go mm-hmm. forward. The main recommendations for the treatment of obesity are not medications or surgery. We basic, which is seeing what we can change in this patients' environment. Number one, always Mm -hmm. decrease like sugary drink juices decrease like sodas for example in the past and it happened Mm -hmm. to me here in in puerto rico i remember my lovely grandmother always telling me like as a child like drink juice drink juice because juice has vitamin c and that may be but now we're learning Mm -hmm. so it's trying to change those beliefs we have in the past to Mm -hmm. say we need to do it in moderation so decrease sugary drink encourage water Mm -hmm right? Encourage the intake of vegetables and fruits. Most adolescents and more kids, and I have one beautiful daughter uh, and she don't like vegetables. So I try to make it interesting, for example, and fun. So I go to the grocery store with her and I actually did it this week. I'm like, okay, let's go to the aisle of the vegetable and you choose, choose three of them, whichever you like, I'm not going to tell you. So they feel like they have some autonomy and yeah, when they go home, they actually want to try it. So make it fun. Increase physical activity. The recommendations are to do 60 minutes per day of physical activity during childhood and adulthood and make it fun again, don't make it boring. And they don't need to pay a gym actually to be do- doing it. Many patients say, you know, for several reasons, I don't want to go to the gym or I can't afford it, whichever is the situation across, you know, even in US. And I'm like, you don't need to go. You can go up and down the stairs in your building. You can go outside, you can go to the park. Do you like to dance? Put your pots and start dancing and just take it. But we need to move. We need to make it fun. And number three is sleep pattern. And this is the one actually we forget about. It's so important to kind of yeah. actually prevent even obesity. We know that patient who has some compromise in their sleep, they sleep few hours or they don't sleep well. There's some changes in hormone, leptin and ghrelin. I'm not going to go into all the details. There's that
0: happened. <laughs> study
1: have shown that next day or for the next few days, you will be taking some more calories and more carbohydrates in your choice, even without you realizing. So it's doing the basic
0: changes first. I think as a society too, we tend to forget the basics, right? And I think this is why incretins is such a very Interesting topic. And I think it has to do with social media, too, that I know incretions have been here for a while, right? It's probably more two decades where we have data and it's been out and about. But it's just recently that it's so hot on fire news. And I I think social media has has a way to play in that, like all the viral things going on. I actually took the subway the other day. And there are posters of free weight loss injections all across Times Square. And I'm like, hmm, there is a revolution going on in our society in the height of social media and ideals and physical ideals online, right? I think the words have been buzzing all around the news, right? Things like Ozempic and Wegovy and Manjaro and Zacenda. Doc, what are incretins And... First of all, why do you think it's so controversial? Like how do they work? What are the intentions for them? What are not the intended effects so, for these? Chris, as
1: you mentioned, ingredients has been out for a while. For maybe around like two thousand, it was already out kind of ninja and mm-hmm. so they are not new however their effect is very positive it has a good effect so mm-hmm. how do they work so they suppress your appetite right so it increase your society it also like decrease the gastric emptying. so when you eat it take longer for your digestion mm-hmm. so then you get full faster and it has many other benefits to the heart and even to pain so those are good medicine mm-hmm. and we see very good results. However, for the last around two years or so, right, it has been on the media, like you mentioned, everything that is on the media, everyone wants to try it. When we are exposed mm-hmm. to the same and we listen to it every day, you want to know what is it and you want to try it because they are so good on what, on the effect, because they do help in weight loss. So mm-hmm. everyone's one set. But I do think at first there was a questionable shortage, right, of the medication. Everyone what was using it, but as of now, we do have enough supply, but we need to use it carefully, a pediatric endocrinologist, which I see patients from birth up to twenty-one years of age. Do I prescribe it? Yes, I do. Do I have patients on those medications? Yes. But I go by certain criteria. I don't give it to anyone. You know, they may come to my clinic because they want to have some weight loss or they don't like how they look. I don't prescribe it like that. I start with basic. We're gonna send you to a registered dietitian. We're gonna do Or month, we're going to come here to my clinic every month because I'm going to be monitoring. And at that time, you get the history, what they have done. So there's some steps. I don't jump into the medication. But uh, for example, Ozempic mm-hmm. and Wegobi, those are semaglutide, which is lp one mm-hmm. receptor analog, which is an incretine right? And Ozempic is the one that is injected once a week versus Wegovi, which also is injected once a week, but it was approved by the FDA, Wegobi for obesity. And Ozempic was kind mm-hmm. of for diabetes type two. The Senda or liraglutide mm-hmm. is the one that was given or is given daily injection but yeah they are very successful they do mm-hmm. have side effect i usually when i started i go over the side effect the possibilities i'm like listen you can see some weight loss and what we aim for is approximately like to lose two pounds per week we will do it slowly mm-hmm. we don't want to do it too fast because that's when you can see maybe gallbladder disease the pancreatic dehydration mm-hmm. so we want to prevent that but yes that's my thinking. They are there. I do use it, but I use it with caution. I encourage patients not to get it from anywhere because, as you mentioned, you have seen it there in the train station. I have seen it here, everywhere, and, in the, and I know this is globally. Mm-hmm. So we need to be careful. We need to be tied with the medical provider for this medication yeah. to be started.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that it's very interesting how endocrinologists are so careful with these medications, but it seems like other practitioners or other providers of these medications who have no expert training in these medications don't have the sense of carefulness to prescribe these, right? I mean, it's very, very interesting for me to Talk with endocrinologists, and they're like, Yeah, we're very careful when it comes to these medications. And then outside, when you walk in the streets, you just see but it. you it, know what? In, Chris? Maybe right? because
1: they may or may not, but I think they may not have seen those side effects. Maybe go to any kind of clinic, mm. you name it, I don't know, that is by a physician who is yeah. They just yeah. Go home, come back in, I don't know, in when. And all these side effects, the patient end up in the ER, the patient go to another doctor, and maybe they don't see the side effect, but we do see it. And that's why, you know, with the experience, we know, like, how to titrate the dose and how to go with it.
0: In this world of social media that places so much physical critique and pressure and maintaining a youthful appearance against all environmental odds, the skincare and beauty industries have succumbed to a myriad of anti-aging practices. However, the covert fact is that beauty is timeless and that aging is a privilege. Regents, an inclusive wellness brand, seeks to promote this ritual of well-aging, understanding that it is connectivity with the body and attentive care given to it as it changes, including our skin. Founded by Filipino-American Gilio Rizio, Regents introduces the all-encompassing serum, created to target the concerns of maturing melanated skin by utilizing a blend of healing botanicals used by our ancestors and select clinically proven active ingredients. From the brightening Ayurvedic licorice root to the soothing centella asiatica and hydrating green algae, welcome to the journey of fueling skin health and enhancing, not changing, your natural shade. With the code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, you can get 15% off your first order on RegionsWellness.com. Experience the power of mixing native wisdom with modern-day science. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I have one, boba. Given that the average cafe-made milk tea has over 100 calories per serving, over 20 grams of high-glycemic sugar, and is packed with artificial flavors, I am so glad that the guilty days are over with twirl. The world's first canned plant-based milk tea, with only 45 to 50 calories per serving and containing six to seven grams of low glycemic sweeteners, Twirl is made with pea milk, the most sustainable plant-based milk on the market, regenerating the soil where it comes from. Fair trade and organic are the names of the game, as the teas are sourced from biodiverse family farms in China, Japan, and Taiwan that practice sustainable farming techniques. No artificial flavors are ever used. From four different flavors to -to ready-to-eat plant-based konjac and boba pearls, let's enjoy tasty, creamy, shelf-stable, and healthy milk tea together for 10% off using the code FRANZ10, that's franz N Z one zero on twirlmilktea.com. Twirl around in its goodness. Growing up, I was ashamed of my Asian heritage. Classmates would comment about the lunch my grandma cooked. Other kids would make fun of my eyes and even some adults today would tell me to go back to where I came from. But where do I really belong? Who really am I? Am I not American enough? Highlighting the year of the first documented arrival of Asian Americans in North America, 1587 Sneakers seeks to shine the spotlight on Asian American stories and demonstrate to the world the extraordinary breadth of our passions and achievements. Baited full-grain natural Italian leather by 4 wear artisans, 100% biodegradable natural rubber outsole, calf leather interior lining for comfort and good smells, and wax cotton laces for longer-lasting cleanliness. These premium sneakers combine the highest quality, an array of timeless designs, and the movement to be authentically who you are. With the code FRANZ15, that's lowercase franz one 15 you can get 15% off your first order on 1587sneakers.com. Step into embracing your identity without hiding. Express yourself and apologetically I think that's something that I want to impart to the public as well who may be listening to this is the importance of the expertise right and the training of the physician who is providing these medications. I must say that I once went to a beauty spa, a a bed spa, who are offering the injections and there is no physician on site. And my alarm is just like, what is going on here? And I think this leads to the things that we see on media, like rapid weight loss, because the providers don't know how to titrate the medications or things that now they're calling the (laughs) Ozempic phase, right? Now, we see this mostly in adults, but I guess, especially with you, the more careful monitoring titration with children. How are the parents' reception of these medications? Excellent
1: question. First, I want to bring to the table that the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recently published some guidelines saying Mm -hmm. it's okay for Mm -hmm. pediatric patients, for example, from 12 years and above, who has obesity to be treated with this medication. And even they suggested that we could consider bariatric surgery from patients age of 13 and above who has severe obesity. So it's there. It's not that we're doing it without any advice or any recommendation. We are doing it correctly. However, parents, I would say both, Chris, I have both spectrum. I may have some parents that are really, you know, into it. They already got it. Some of them are are already on the medication and they in the benefit and they would like the, the child to try it and others are like okay we try for example for a long time the, the intervention and we offer and they're like no i'm afraid I, I i rather you know stay doing the physical activity or the changes in lifestyle which is okay too i never push for a medication at all and again i'm so cautious well to whom i prescribe those medications, but i do prescribe because I want to prevent on my patient who has this severe obesity that to develop type two diabetes, hypertension, liver problem. We know it will lead to that, mm-hmm. and I want to prevent that. And I know I have the you know I could contribute to for healthy, but again, it's a process. For a four months before yeah. you can go there.
0: That's such a very important point to make. Is I love reading comments on, on Instagram. And there was a post, I think a month or so ago, by the New York Times, where it was talking about Ozempic. And a lot of the comments, I I don't know if you've seen them, they're like, oh, these doctors love to prescribe these medications because they can get money from it. <laughs> and I think they don't see the side of the story like you are just saying, where that is not our first line of defense. We, care for these patients we want to avoid all the comorbidities related to it and there's a whole Definitely. guideline. i I, I talk it, to right?
1: myself i don't get any money <laughs> at all for physical specific- yeah is not in my interest at all i do it because i'm a medical professional so i do it when it's indicated but yeah there is a lot of miseducation we need to actually educate the population the community Mm -hmm. and that's why we i talk for myself i started to go now on social media because i want to give proper education to the community otherwise Mm -hmm. you know everyone will go and get the osempec on a spa or things like
0: yeah and it's a safety risk right lives are involved and stuff like that well i wanted to ask we, we talked a lot about how beyond the children the parents are also part of the care well a big part of the care when it comes to pediatrics right i think the main reason why i couldn't go into pediatrics is i was so scared of the parents You know, it's like most of the time like the yes. patients are the parents right like they come in with their preconceived notions, whether of how they were raised or cultural aspects, potentially religious aspects, social aspects, and the expectations they have for their child. And just the concept, I mean, you're a parent, so I, I know you can relate to this, like the concept of what is right and best for my child, right? But here comes along another person in the story, which is you, the physician as well, who, based on the guidelines and the recommendations, are giving Expert medical advice that may sometimes be kind of not in the way of how a parent may see it's right or best for their kid. As a physician, how do you reconcile that idea of parents are part of the care and have, like, this is what's best for my child versus your? Good question. I will say,
1: you know, of course, we all do have both type of situations, right? Those parents that will go straight for what, this is what the doctor is saying. And even because of cultural belief, right? I'm going to this is how it is. Don't mm-hmm. even ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I do have other parents who really want to know why or they have their belief. I usually start the same with everyone, with my patients, their family. It's like try to listen to their concerns. Why they are saying that, why they are like doubting on the management, why they have so many questions about it to kind of create some right. rapport between us. So we can, you know, have an open conversation, right? Chris, in this new model, actually, that I brought for to the, the direct specialty care in pediatric technology, I actually give patients more time to stay with me. Instead of the traditional medical system of seeing patients very quick, I can stay with my patient for an hour. So I'm listening to them. They see there's no rush. Again, no judgment, right? So I, I don't judge the family or the patient, right? Because we have different beliefs. It means yeah. that we, i'm right and they're wrong not at all sometimes mm-hmm. it may be more education mm-hmm. i may provide them with even like evidence-based guidelines or information mm-hmm. this is written more mm-hmm. come back to me let's talk about it um so i try to create that relationship but number one is i always respect them right i always to them and then i try to answer mm-hmm. their
0: questions yeah Doc, you are amazing and I can't imagine also the stress that comes with I mean people's lives in your hands right as a physician and especially with children right the next generation of people in this world how do you decompress out of work and out of I guess the rage in social media as well especially in your field how do you decompress uh, out of work um, after all of we this? need to decompress
1: right Chris you know because so busy so stressful we take care of so many patients life right and we do so many decisions okay. i do decompress by doing exercise mm-hmm. i do love to do exercise that's in that we should and i always recommend it. do it any stress situation go and run if you like or do exercise i do like to meditate i love it i feel like it really relaxes me and then i spend time with my family i do enjoy being with my husband and with my daughter going out um laugh dance go eat like a very puerto rican meal so yes Those are the ways that I decompress and I take care of myself.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And Doc, let's say a parent or a guardian is watching and to our video or, you know, along the line is listening to our podcast episode and they're just so nervous and so so heartbroken because their child has obesity and they don't know what to do and obviously they're scared for the health of their child. As, as a pediatric endocrinologist, what would be your message for that parent who is struggling about the struggle? So you're not alone.
1: Child? Definitely you're alone and it's not your fault. Like I mentioned before, there's different factors that could be causing your child having obesity. The first step is to recognize it. So right by that part in recognizing that a patient has obesity is a good step to start. And then again, be a role model for your child. This is so important. They look up to us. We cannot tell them like, don't drink that juice, that juice is for the brother, or it's for me, or oh, you don't do that. We can't judge the child. We need to lead by example and get help. Make sure you go and get and see your pediatrician regularly, number one, because even if you go for regular checkup, we can identify the trend of that BMI or percentile that I spoke, and we can take some action earlier. And by some action, again, doesn't mean that it's medication, maybe just seeing you every month instead of every year right when it may have been too late yeah and seek support you know look for support you're not alone we are here for you and we can make it but don't let your child have obesity we need to stop child obesity
0: doc that is so beautiful i am so grateful for the time and the expertise that you have shared with me today thank you so so much and it would be such a big thank honor you so to much for having me
1: a pleasure i did have so much fun I'm going to plan to go <laughs> to New York soon. I really want to go. So I will contact you to see. And if you come to Puerto Rico, yes, please, please let me know. Because I would like to take you around and give you some food and music.
0: Yeah, I would love that. Dr. Perez-con, thank you so much. I hope you the have same, a great the rest of the same night. to you there. and to everyone who's watching. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dad. Bye.